Hi, everybody. Welcome to the On She Goes Live podcast brunch at the Hoxton Hotel, Portland. First of all, thank you so much to the Hoxton for allowing us to be a part of this opening week. We're super excited. This hotel is beautiful, um, and it's right in the heart of Portland, which is awesome. So today, the topic is showing up and showing out uh, as women of color here in the city of Portland. Uh, We'll be discussing travel and thriving as a woman of color in Portland. Sitting down with us today is Teresa Tran, the lovely. Uh, Teresa is a Portlander, an entrepreneur, a brand strategist, lifestyle expert, and has worked for some of the biggest companies and works with some of the most famous superstar athletes around the world, and is also the founder of The Offense. Uh, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. We are absolutely delighted to have you. Thank you. And I'm Sarita, and I just that the other ladies could introduce themselves as well. <laughs> I'm Farron Nickdell. I'm Vivian Zhang. And I'm Rebecca Russell. And uh, first, I'm going to have Teresa, before we jump into the conversation, tell us a little bit about herself. I know she just came in from Europe last night, back to Portland. Thank you so much for making the journey. Thanks for having me. I'm a Portland native. I live in New York and I'm a little bit bi-coastal. So anything and any reason for me to get back to Portland, I'm always sort of on that first plane here, which is why she said I was in the UK just yesterday. I was in Manchester Monday, Amsterdam Tuesday, Liverpool Wednesday, and Portland yesterday. And here I am um, with you guys. On she goes. Literally, on she goes. Um, So, and like... On the in the vein of travel, you know, on she goes is a travel website and platform for women of color. And so, I want to ask you, as a woman of color who travels all around the world, uh, what are kinds? Of, what are the kinds of experiences that you've had that are that you feel are um, kind of uh, specific to who you are as a person? I would say the one great benefit of being able to travel the world is actually to realize that even though you you stand out, at the same time you blend in. Um, I've been to so many countries where if you just sort of play it cool, <laughs> they don't really know that you're a tourist. They don't know that you're a non-local. They don't know that you're an out-of-towner. I mean, I've traveled to Brazil um, in the Amazon region where local Amazonas women mm-hmm. actually look a lot like me. So right. they thought I was one of them. I sometimes go to Mexico and they think that I'm Mexican. Mm-hmm. I go to the Philippines or you know, Thailand or wherever it is in Asia, they think I'm one of them. Um, and so that's always been a very kind of big benefit is to know that, you know, no matter what, no matter how you think you might stand out or be different, do not fear because you actually can blend in quite well. Um, I've traveled to about 56 countries all over the world. I've had some amazing experiences. I've never felt, you know, scared or, um, or fearful for my life in any sort of way. So don't let any of the stories that people tell you deter you. Don't let any of these blogs that tell you to, you know, do this and don't do this. Just be smart. You know, we all live and work and act in a society where you know what's going on in the world and just adapt um, and get to know the locals. And once you get to know the locals, I think they kind of uh, spiritually have your back. It's interesting because I do feel like, and we talk about this a couple times in our podcast, how um, the majority of the world looks like us. Like, you know, like the majority of the world are people of color. I mean, so it is kind of easier to blend in. We just recently came back from Panama. And I mean, I don't think anybody thought it otherwise of me, you know? So it is, it is very, um, that is very interesting that you noted that, you know? Um, so obviously working for all these huge brands, you've gotten to travel a ton for work. We talk about work travel a lot because it's something that we feel, at least in our experience, that as women of color, we haven't had a ton of experience with, with like our families growing up and stuff like that. Like my mother traveled for work, but like my grandmother did. And a lot of people of color were doing trades in their specific cities. So work travel wasn't a huge thing. Um, what was your first major work trip like? And, and how was that? I think there's a couple things that explain why 
I have a love for travel. Um, first, I'm a Sagittarius, so cosmically. Oh, wow, me too. <laughs> so I think cosmically, it's I'm destined to want to experience the world and new things. Um, I'm also an immigrant in this country. So when you think about when you're two years old, and my mom's in the room here, so Hi, she can talk yeah, more about mom. the experiences. Yeah. But we we escaped to Vietnam, and I was not only I was just just a little bit over a year old. And programmed as a child, when you're escaping a country in a war-torn situation, your body energetically is already on the move in survival mode. So I think, so I think that also kind of shaped me to be the traveler that I am today. And I think growing up, I don't remember ever playing outdoors or having toys or dolls or playing sports. I remember being inside a lot um, I was always practicing typing on a typewriter because I wanted to be a secretary. My dream was to be a secretary one day so I could travel. <laughs> I wanted to be a secretary to a powerful executive businessman wow. so I could travel the world. That was my dream. And I remember typing and taking all these typing tests because it's like, this is going to get me on a plane somewhere. <laughs> now you're a yeah, now you're executive <laughs> business queen. Yeah. So just knowing that in my childhood, I think it just developed this... Um, very fearless mentality of knowing that, you know, work is going to be the passport to travel, but it's also going to be the passport to life. And I just manifested it from a very, very young age. Do you think as a woman of color and someone coming from kind of like Sarita was saying, where our backgrounds kind of lend us to not think about like, to not be able to have travel in our lives for a while, at least for me. Uh, like, my parents were, my mom's a teacher, my dad's an insurance worker. Like, travel is just not in our forte. We didn't have money to travel. And uh, do you think that you wanted to be so successful in order to travel? Like, is that... But travel doesn't mean a plane. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. took road trips when we were growing up. We probably didn't have a whole lot of money to travel, but I just remember doing fun road trips to the beach and to Canada and to any Chinatown in any part of the country (laughs) we wanted to explore. It was a Chinatown tour. Um, You know, and just being on the move, regardless of your financial circumstances, and just being able to experience um, different things, whether it was food, whether it was outdoor activities, whether it was just kind of local culture, whether it was, you know, six people stuffed into a hotel room because it was just the exoticness of a hotel room. Yeah. Those all shaped my travel, mental travel diary. Yeah. It had nothing to do with money and finances and, mm-hmm. and, and wealth at all, ever. That's a really good point, too, because I think those are the experiences. Like, I'm thinking back on on our travel growing up, and, like, that was such a great time. It would literally be, like, me, my mother, my two aunts, all of their kids in, like, one hotel in, like, Orlando, Florida. Um, And just, you know, having a good time. And even though it wasn't, I didn't know any different. I didn't know what, like, luxury travel was. I didn't know what, like, staying in an expensive hotel was. But I was so thankful to have that experience. And we always talk about, like, as women of color, travel means so many things to us. Um, You know, it could literally mean anything at this point because it's also just, like, walking in your truth. Even in a city like Portland. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And kind of on that realm, I'm going to actually go straight to uh, being unapologetically a woman of color in a place like Portland growing up here and things like that. I mean, I we know Portland's history. It's a wonderful city, but we are, we're not shy about the fact that we know the history is a little... Uh, um, and, you know, what was it like growing up in Portland as a young person of color and also uh, an immigrant and the daughter of immigrants? Well, in most life situations, I was, on, I was always the only Vietnamese person at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much growing up in school at college, um, in my jobs. Most of the time I was the only woman in the room or in the setting, but all the time I think I was the only Vietnamese person. Um, I think when I started out in my career, I didn't want that kind of double whammy sort of affect me. You're a woman, you're an immigrant, and because I work in sport, I've never played a day of sport in my life. I'm very good at sports marketing and sports branding, but I'm, I was never an athlete. So that's kind of a triple whammy, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I used to go to these meetings being super prepared, studying up and being 
as smart as the next person in the room next to me. And, but I also used to remember walking in these meetings saying, you know what, you're not a woman and you're of no ethnicity. I almost walked in as a shell of a person mm -hmm. and didn't express the fact I was, that I was a woman and did not express the fact that I was Vietnamese. I would walk into a room, sit down and say, hello, nice to meet you, here's my work. So in a way it's like I kind of hid behind my work. But now as I'm much more seasoned in my career and much older um, and I've accomplished enough to sort of be more proud of it, I can be more unapologetically female um, when I'm in these same situations, which fast forward today, there's more women in the room, but still I'm the only person, Vietnamese person, which is interesting. Um, I'd love to see more, you know, opportunities or more raised for Vietnamese people to um, expose themselves in, in the sports marketing world. Um, and, and I think when it comes to female energy, you know, the, when they talk about estrogen in the room, like you mentioned earlier today, as finally there's estrogen in the room. I don't think it's any, I think it's more like the soft skills that a woman brings to a situation that actually brings balance and objectivity to a room full of men. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with that. We naturally are born with nurturing um, skills. We are naturally born with the ability to multitask and please everybody in our lives. Mm -hmm. We are born with soft skills that just genetically men don't have. So use that to your advantage and allow the people to respect you for your work, but also know that you bring um, something to the table as an exceptional female. Yeah. Um, what do you think was that turning point for you in terms of embracing your intersectionality at work? Was there one or was it just with experience and time? It came with experience. Being naive actually helps, you know, just kind of going in and just winging it and just knowing that you already have a triple whammy and you're like, I'm just going to own it. <laughs> just knowing that, you kind of just walk in a little bit fearless. This kind of goes back to that survival mentality of being an immigrant, you know, in this country. You just do it. And as long as you can back up who you are with your preparation, hard work, work ethic, and follow through and follow up and attention to detail, let all that other stuff just kind of play itself out. You know, at the, at the end of the day, people will recognize you for your abilities, regardless of your, um, your gender. But I've been very, very blessed and lucky to have incredible men in my career who have elevated me, promoted me, paid me, and, uh, and mentored me in my entire career. Um, so for every kind of one awkward or inappropriate moment that a man has put in front of me in a business setting, there's 25 men that have basically negated that. So um, I kind of just want to make it more about, less about the Me Too movement and more about like, thank you to all these great men that have trusted me with their lives, their brands and their businesses um, and allowed me to be me. So when you speak to being kind of the only one in the room, both as a woman and then also as a Vietnamese woman, do you find so often that you're having to speak on behalf of all women or all Vietnamese women um, since you're kind of the one representative there? I think I just go in and speak on behalf of people. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, and this is what should and shouldn't be done. Um, am I an advocate for um, female advancement? Absolutely, but I'm the same advocate for a young male mm -hmm. who's learning and finding his way in the sports industry and asks me to be his mentor. I'll be his advocate at the same time. So um, I think it's just, having a love for, for people and their potential. Mm -hmm. You work with a lot of uh, athletes at the moment, and, um, and you have been, and you help them with their lifestyle brands and everything else in their marketing. How was that at first? Um, you mentioned that you don't know much about, you weren't, you weren't playing sports, but you know about sports. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, as someone who tries really hard to know a lot about sports, I try really hard, guys. Um, but 
how is that working with them? And also because it is a male-dominated field. And I know you said you you are, you know, very unapologetic about the fact that you're like, listen, I'm a woman, but I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Were you doubted at first? Were you able to, like, kind of, like, push past any doubt if there was? No, because I think you, you, you have to address those things in the beginning so that you leave zero room for assumptions, zero room for error, zero room for um, any kind of... Um, unfairness or kind of a, a judgment against you. Mm-hmm. So I'll have meetings with athletes and I'll walk and I'll say, you take care of your sport. You play on the field. Mm-hmm. You play your football. You play your soccer. You play your basketball. You do your snowboarding. You do your skateboarding. You take care of on the field. I will take care of everything off the field. Mm-hmm. So what do you want to do? What are your passions? Tell me more about, more about your personality. What's your vision board? And a lot of these athletes don't really have the time. They've been programmed their entire lives to, you know, train and practice play, train and practice, practice play, get traded, train and practice play. You know, they, they've yeah. been programmed and conditioned to kind of live a very regimented life as an athlete that they haven't had the chance to sit back and say, you know what, in 10 years, 15 years when I retire, this is what I want to do. These are my passions. I want to be involved in these charities. Um, I want to be a designer. I want to be, you know, a DJ. I want to be, um, I want to collect art. There's all these things they have because they're people as well. And I help them tap into those passion points Mm -hmm. and bring it to life in a way that not only promotes them as a brand, as as their image as a brand, but also help them monetize it. Mm -hmm. Like there's actually a way for you to make money over here so that when you are done playing, you can actually sustain your name and do this over here. So I established that right at the beginning. I say, I'm not an athlete. I don't play your sport. I'm not going to pretend I play your sport. But I know your sport well enough to know that X, Y, and Z is a white space opportunity. And let's go after it. I have a question. So when you say athlete, out of my own bias in working in the sports marketing world, I think men. And I'm sure you work with plenty of female athletes, but their voices are never told it's untold stories it's not risen they don't get paid well so what do you do with your female athlete clients like how how do you tackle that space this is actually a really eye-opening epiphany in that i have never in my career worked with a female athlete and that to me is very (laughs) no i i I was approached not too long ago about working with a female athlete, and I love her story, and I really want to work with her. Um, and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, my entire career, I have shaped the brands and the businesses and the lives and have put money in the pockets of men, all male athletes. I have never worked with a female athlete. And I'm shocked, but I have to change it, so I need to now manifest. Like, imagine if I took everything that I did and put it towards female athletes was that just because it wasn't like available like you know was there not like their outreach or anything like that or well no female athlete has ever approached me so that Mm -hmm. is one part of it because a lot of my business is word of mouth and referrals it's not like you know I'm running ads saying hey I want to be your sports marketer or your PR person right? right everything is in a circle of trust and everything is within the industry and everything is Um, word of mouth and referrals Mm -hmm. so somehow working with one male athlete led to another male Mm -hmm. athlete led to another male athlete right and I have helped some of these athletes wives and girlfriends kind of with their branding and image marketing but I've never had a female athlete come inbound Mm -hmm. to me so I probably need to be more proactive about my own vision board and my own mood board to say what are some outstanding female athletes Mm -hmm or even female executives or just female personalities that I would like to work with mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. Do you think it's because there's a lack of education on that side where men can refer other men, but women don't even know to do that? Which reminds me a lot of the traveling space where if you don't even know, you don't know what you don't know. So if these women don't know to reach out, like what is the first step to do that? Well, I think the first step is again, to put it out there into the universe and to manifest it. Right. And I you know, built a career in a business in this field in a way where where I've been very lucky to get the opportunities that I have. So I probably haven't done enough of that own manifestation to say, okay, you know, what are some emerging 
female talent that that I want to put on sort of my list to have kind of on my roster. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is with a lot of these female athletes, their agents and advisors are probably men. Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe they're not being educated by their people to seek out other female representatives or female counterparts. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of that. Yeah, um, it seems like such an obvious fit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this one particular athlete. I think if I if I can if I can make that happen, I think we can be pretty like it, it can be game changing because between her and I, me and the level of experience that I have, and her being kind of like this new hot young female athlete kind of in the public sphere, I think we could be a pretty deadly combination. I'm literally in my head like guessing. <laughs> I'm like, who is it? Um, I'm doing like process of elimination. Um, speaking of like working with other women, we actually just did a, a panel last week uh, for Fast Company with uh, Michaela Angela Davis, Miss Info, Angela Yee, and um, uh, Jamila Lemieux. And one of the things that was mentioned uh, by Miss Info was uh, women of color working in the same space. And we talked about intersectionality between women of color, giving each other that, uh, that equal platform to kind of like grow, digging each other up, making sure that everyone feels represented, making sure that everyone feels heard in that way, in which we usually kind of talk about intersectionality from the perspective of like women of color and just white women. Um, have you, and one of the things that was said was, um, before I ask the question, one of the things that was said was that um, there is sometimes a air of competition or a fear of losing your place because there's someone else that is not a white person, that is a woman of color that is in your space that you're like, uh-oh, this person's about to come in here and steal my spot. And there's not really a camaraderie sometimes. Do you feel like that's true? Have you experienced that? Um, or do you feel like that's totally not true? <laughs> I haven't experienced it. I think there's some, some tremendous female counterparts that I have in the sports space. Many of the world's biggest athlete superstars actually have women behind them as management, as, um, as uh, representatives, as mm -hmm. long, long, long time you know, business partners. And we don't realize it because I think we as women, when you, I don't know, it's more like just do your work and let it speak for itself. Right. And I'm not a self-promoter. Um, many of the women that I know that work in this industry are not self-promoters either. I think as we get older, we realize that it's time to speak our truths a little bit more because we're only going to help raise that next generation. So no, I don't think any of us are threatened mm -hmm. by the younger, newer generation coming in and taking our place because we've paved the way for them. Right. So in a way, it's like, I don't think about the glass ceiling. I think about building my own house, <laughs> you know, and when there you build goes. your own house, <laughs> you can do whatever you want in it. And it can be an open roof, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be any kind of ceiling. Right. Because it's almost like you, I've, I've used corporate America to gain the expertise and the, um, and the credibility to be able to then move into having my own business um, with the kind of the backing that I had working and growing up in corporate America. Mm -hmm. But that to me is not a, a path that I want to, or a, a ladder that I want to keep climbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. And speaking of building your own house, um, I would love to know more about the offense and how you decided to start your own company and, and you know, what the process was like for you in that space? Um, well, when you go back to winging it <laughs> and being naive, I mean, who, you know, who, who teaches you how to own and run a business? Who tells you about setting up an LLC or an S Corp? Who, you know, who tells you how to do payroll? Who tells you right. how to pay your quarterly taxes? And no, nobody told me any of that. I don't even think of, they teach it in school, uh, which is don't actually terrible. <laughs> You know, so who, you know, who knows how you, that you can actually buy benefits for yourself and you actually can set up your own 401k for a one person company so that Ooh. I don't have to rely upon, you know, a corporate job. But, um, 
I always had an interest in starting my own company. I just, it was just a matter of when. And I knew that I couldn't do it when I was too young because I didn't have the experience to be taken seriously in the world. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do, do it too late where if I were to fail, it'd almost be like too late to get a job again. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So I kind of yeah. had to find like that sweet spot. And it, I was 33 when I left 14, uh, oh God, I mean, I've been working for a long time. I started my first big corporate job at 19. So yeah, after 14 years in corporate America, I, um, I went off on my own and started my own company, agency, consultancy, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole idea was to do exactly what I did for, in my corporate jobs, but be able to take that skill set and take on different clients and give them all that expertise and not only that but be able to give myself the creative freedom to um, come up with my own ideas and figure out how to sort of just make it happen mm -hmm. and then thirdly because I love to travel the only way for me to have the freedom to travel wherever I want in the world and work from wherever I want in the world was to have my own business mm -hmm. you know in a corporate job you get your 12 14 days a year you know, yeah. PTO, mm -hmm. I guess they still call it We're PTO. very familiar with that. You know, so you get your PTO days and this and that, but, you know, I can work from, you know, a beach shack in Tulum and get my work done. My clients don't even know that I'm not physically there. Yeah. I can do it from, you know, Palm Springs at the pool. I can do it from the, you know, a, a high-rise hotel in Vegas with the gorgeous view, you know, whatever it is, I feel like for, for me to get the kind of work done and for me to have the clients that I have, it never required or it never was going to happen with me sitting at a desk job. Right. I had to be out there. I had to travel. I had to meet people. I had to just go and put my energy out there and to seek business wherever it is that I was at. How has traveling influenced your work? Has it make it better? Does it inspire you just to be around different energies, different cities? It inspires everything that I do. Um, it's tiring, and you have to think of things that you, the average person might not think of. You know, I've had to land in town in, from a red eye and change really quickly in the bathroom mm -hmm. and get in a taxi and go straight to a meeting as if I had slept 11 hours that night. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had to um, have travel constantly changed on me where on any given day you don't even know where, where you're at and what city you're in because it's just like this whirlwind. Um, you know, I've gained so much weight traveling for work because you just eat all the time. <laughs> you know, so you come back and it's like, I just got to get my back life back to normal. There's a lot of things that people don't realize um, are the downsides of travel. But at the same time, um, it's just a way to see the world. And if you can do it on somebody else's dime, it's even better. <laughs> yep. One thing people don't do enough of, and I always try to is if you're going somewhere on a business trip just try to add on two days afterwards yeah and pro tip yeah <laughs> no it just try to and a lot of people feel like they have to rush back home and rush back to their desk job or whatever it is but just try to give yourself that two days in the beginning or two days at the end to just have your own time to explore even if you have to pay out of pocket for it you know it's mm. worth it you're, you're already the, there. The so. Yeah, you're already there. The flight's <laughs> the most expensive. So even if you have, to, you have to check out of the hotel and get into an Airbnb or stay at a hostel for, you know, a lot cheaper. Or the Hoxton? <laughs> the Hoxton. Or yes. the Hoxton, yeah. Pro tip. Um, Sorry, I had to. <laughs> I've had to spend um, seven years of my traveling career only traveling with a carry-on because wow. my clients that I traveled with only did carry-ons. And so I'm not going to hold them up at baggage claim when you get straight from plane to chauffeured limo or what have you. So I've been on a six-week business trip with just to carry on. Ooh, um, what is your tip for that? Oh my god! Right. Even like you have like nice clothes and yeah. stuff too. Oh no, yeah, you have to pack. You have, you have shoes. Pack. You've got to pack sneakers, heels, business outfits, casual outfits, workout outfits. Um, you kind of just have to pack it all. But it was at the World Cup in 2014 in Brazil. We were jumping around 
my clients were already there in Brazil. So for them, everything was just a day trip in and out. Mm -hmm. But I had come in from America, and I was there for six weeks. And so I had to make sure everything was in, in my carry-on. So I bought the shrink-wrapped, what do you call it? Oh, the, the little thing that sucks the air out? Yeah. My mom gave me one of those for Christmas. So <laughs> I bought that. So I had about four bags. One bag was just for casual clothes. One bag for jackets, blazers, and, and then one bag for kind of tops and skirts, and one bag for pants and jeans. And I just like shrunk-wrapped them all. And then I had like, I think I fit nine, nine pairs of shoes. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so your mom needs to hook that up for everybody. And I don't know who calls for the call. Shout out to these shoes mm -hmm. that you're wearing. They are very, I can't stop looking at them. I'm just like, oh my God, the shoes. Um, kind of taking it back to Portland a little bit. Um, I'm actually really curious to see how you feel like the city has changed. Being from here and coming back and forth and being like bi-coastal and, and worldwide, how do you feel the city has changed, if you feel it's changed at all? I mean, obviously, we're sitting in this building, which looks amazing. How do you feel like it's changed? Um, when I first moved to New York, this was in 1998, I would tell people that I was from Portland, and they would automatically assume Portland, Maine. If, wow. you're, if, you're, if you're in New York now and you tell them that you're from Portland, everybody is like, oh, my God, I've never been to Oregon. I love Portland. I read so much about it. So Portland is 100% on the map. I was in Morocco staying in a little casita right near um, in, in Marrakesh, kind of near the in a Medina area. And randomly in the waiting room of this hotel, this boutique casita, was a magazine about environmentally friendly design, and Portland was on the cover. Oh, yeah. Portland follows me all these places, you know. It's just the craziest thing. Mm -hmm. I have a person that's in town right now who I met in Croatia who's Slovenian, and we've only seen each other in New York, but is in Portland right now, out of the blue. And, like, what are the chances of that happening? Right. You know, that we're here, here together at the same time, but at the same time, he never comes to Portland. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't even live in America. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, so lives, in, he lives in Croatia. That's crazy. So um, that Portland energy follows me everywhere, and it's pretty amazing. What's the best part about this city to you? Um, the summer. Yeah. Well, Always. Yes. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> I think we can all attest to that. <laughs> Always the summer. Um, Even though it's pretty nice now in the fall, like the sun's shining. I think it's very entrepreneurially friendly. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a city that has big corporate jobs if you want it. Mm -hmm. It's a city that has all the amenities of a proper big city, but it has that homey feel, that hominess mm -hmm. um, that you don't get many other places and I had to leave Portland to appreciate it more if I just stayed in Portland the whole time and never left I don't think I would be as as proud or as excited or as passionate but because I've left and I know what Portland means to people outside of Portland and because I've had the opportunity to um, travel and experience the world but also know what know what values the city has for me right. I always love coming coming back and you can't beat summers in Portland anywhere that's actually very true anywhere very true. i have kind of a two-parter oh were you about to ask questions go ahead okay so it up. Uh, <laughs> my first question is do you consider portland home um and uh so that's a separate question and then the next one is what other places around the world do you also consider home um i consider portland home but i pay rent in new york <laughs> 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 so sometimes yeah. when I say I'm, sometimes when I say to people I'm coming home 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 they think New York I'm like no I'm at Portland sounds like um, but I pay rent in New York I have to do business in New York New York is a hub for what I do and it's a hub where all my clients are passing through in some way shape or form and it's also where I have to drum up business if if I could make New York wages on Portland cost of living I will have cracked the code. Rich. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the dream. <laughs> but I have to pay New York cost of living. Um, but Portland is always home. Are there any other countries that you feel like are home to you? Um, 
When I landed in Sydney, Australia for the first time, I felt totally automatically at home. I don't know why. I just felt like I knew the city and the streets and my way around and nothing was confusing to me. And I spent three months in Sydney and uh, it, was, it was my second home at that time. Um, where else? No, I don't think anywhere else is home. Is it because? I mean, Tulum feels like home. <laughs> that I wish Tulum was beautiful. home for me. I love, I love Tulum, and I love just the, the, the barefoot. Um, it's like a combination of just like barefoot chic, but also a little bit of New York hustle. Really? Yeah. Interesting. There's a lot of New Yorkers. Do that, you think, because Australia, from what I've heard, I have not been, uh, it, it feels a lot like America from the most part of I've heard. It's like one of the countries outside of America that does feel the most like the United States. Do you think maybe that's a little bit of why? Or was it the people or just the environment? I think it was the environment, the weather. Um, there was that sort of like this very international hustle and bustle, but then also people were very laid back and relaxed yeah. because of the kind of the, the, the sunny beach, day. sunny beach. environment of Sydney. So, but yeah, it's a very, very international city. Very, very, very multicultural. So on the opposite side of that, um, in terms of culture shock or just being in a place where you're like, wait a second, this is not, something feels a little off. Have you experienced that? And if so, where? I would say in Cairo, Egypt, um, the men were very aggressive. I did not feel comfortable walking through the Medina marketplace, the souks. Um, they were very, very aggressive, mm -hmm. and I didn't like it. Are there any tips all. that you would give someone if they were going there to kind of like how to deal with that? I mean, we had actually someone that was telling us about um, certain restaurants and lunchtime in Egypt where there's times where um, only the men eat. Mm -hmm. Where there's, and they didn't realize that and they were a woman trying to sit down and eat and they weren't being served and also like looking looked at her. But it's like also knowing people's culture and customs and so on that are very different from ours. Do you have any tips for anyone who would be, you know, possibly taking that journey? Um, I don't want to say anything bad about Cairo because it's actually a, it's a historic city with yeah. historic, you know, ancient yeah, I hear relics and it yeah. should be a, a travel destination for, for people to see one of the wonders of the world. Um, I would just say in that situation, just travel with a group of people or travel with um, uh, uh, like a chauffeur or have a chauffeur or a, like a tour guide or something just to, just to make it so that you don't feel like they're just sort of in your face trying to, you know, follow you down an alley to sell you a trinket, you know. Right and scream things at you if you ignore them, okay. or the faster you walk, the faster they follow you. Um, and it's not dangerous, it's just uncomfortable. Like, yeah. I just don't think they respected my, my, my space. space. Yeah, that's important. Um, I had an interesting situation doing business in Cairo, which, you know, was, it started out uncomfortable, but then, you know, when you tell them that as an American woman, you, I will not tolerate X, Y, and Z. This is what's happening in the world right now. Are you following and paying attention? Right. And when you say that, they're like, oh, okay. And then they soften up and then they, and then they actually will conduct business with you. But it's a little bit of that barrier at first where you have to just set your boundaries and, um, and be able to kind of like open the way to, to conduct business. Mm -hmm. um, before we open it up for questions, uh, there's one thing I wanted to ask. So we talk a lot about reaching back and um, Michelangelo Davis said something really important last week where she said that uh, for every woman who's in any industry, get yourself a girl. And what she meant by that was like, get, get a girl, get a young girl, a younger person, a teenager, somebody, and let them see you. Let them see you be your true self in work, in life. Let them see you have a seat at the table and be unapologetic. And because that's going to give them the energy and the confidence to kind of do the same thing that you're doing and they won't know any different. What do you think about that? And do you do you kind of follow the principle of mentorship? I know we have a friend in common that you say is like your little sister. Um, what do you what is your, what are your thoughts? I think it's super important. I think that the only way to. Um, to know that that my clients will be all right 
is to know that there's a there's a next generation coming because mm -hmm. I, I know I'm not going to do this forever and I know unfortunately at a certain age I will have out priced or out aged myself um, out of the, the industry I know this um, so I have to think about how to kind of be like the mother hen almost yeah. and just say okay here's sort of like what I know what I've done and how you can learn from it but you guys have to go and do this because a I'm not going to be able to travel as much someday I may not be able to be out at as many functions as is required of me I won't be able to um, put in the kind of hours that sometimes are required in this job or in this industry so I do know that at some point I will have to sort of step to the side and be a little bit more of this guiding um, this guiding sort of light for somebody to sort of come up next I haven't found a Teresa replacement yet though and that's this that's the hard part because so much of my business is based on relationships yeah and they've taken 25 years for me to develop mm -hmm. and these are people that trust me and bring me into their homes and into their families and they they when they hire my company they're hiring me right. they're not hiring me my junior so I still have to figure out how to do that to be able to sustain my business but then um, let my clients know that everything will be okay and, th and that's that's the tough part right now is yeah. needing to find that that replacement to me well if you know anybody <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna open it up if anyone has any questions for Teresa or okay please and here I'll bring you the mic I'm gonna walk around I'm like Oprah <laughs> I have two questions one is um, as an entrepreneur myself sort of starting out I find that I like to talk to a lot of people about things but then it's really hard to take constructive criticism from people who haven't constructed anything so I talk to a lot of men entrepreneurs and they just don't even care they're just like this is what you do do this so I find like I failing I have a lot of self-doubt like I just don't know if I'm making the right decision is this the right choice so how do you go through the process of like that's the font that's the thing we're gonna do like how do you make those decisions or do you just trust your gut every time? I mean, I'd have to say I trust my gut and I've had, um, I've had people give me different decisions. For instance, if, if I'm talking to a female mentor or a male mentor, the male mentor might be um, just raise some money, raise some investment capital and spend other people's money. Just spend other people's money. That's how you're going to grow. And then the female mentor would be like, no, this is blood, sweat and tears. This is your baby keep putting your own money into it because if it's your own money it's your own um, vested interest and I'm not saying that this is exactly how men and women are but my male mentors um, I don't know sometimes they're a little bit more bullish and matter of fact and my female mentors are a little bit more um, go with your gut and your intuition and then somewhere in the middle is kind of where I end up sort of sitting um, but yeah, go with your gut. Anybody else? Questions? Questions? Oh. Um, earlier in my career, thank you for being here and thank you guys for having this. Earlier in my career, um, someone gave me some advice around mentorships and making sure that I had a mentor who did not look like me. Um, were there, it, was there any advice that you had as you start to seek out mentors for yourself? Um, the mentors that I'm are drawn to are the people that have very balanced lives where you can see that they're a boss in the workplace but they also have a good family life they have good family values mm -hmm. and they're respectful of women um, so I have clients some clients have said to me that they prefer only to work with women because they feel like there's this built-in tribe of mothers and sisters and aunts that are always looking out for them and they prefer that and you, you know you sometimes look at their relationship to women or relationship to their mother or relationship with their wife to kind of get a good sense of how they are as as a, as a person um but yeah I, I look for mentors who can handle it at work and then also at at personal that's really interesting. I feel like I've never heard anyone say, I, I've always been told, like, you want to get a mentor that's like, looks like you and that's similar to you so you can kind of like emulate their life and their path almost. That's really interesting. But I do see what you're saying too, where it's like, get a mentor who lives like how you want to live. Mm 
Yes. <laughs> that way you can yeah, kind of yeah, do, yeah. you know? Exactly. Um, any other questions? Anybody? Anybody? Um, so I just moved to Portland about two months ago. I'm originally, <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm originally from Kentucky. Um, I'm in my early 20s and I'm uncertain if I'm going to continue on the same um, path that I was on when I was in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so I'm really interested in um, gaining more experience to figure out what it is that I do want to do. So I guess my question is, what are the types or what are the tools or the experience that experiences that you garnered in your 20s that helped you get to where you are right now? I would say when I was in my 20s or maybe my late teens, I mean, I, I wanted to work as soon as I could. My parents never had to pay me allowance because as soon as I could make money, I was making money. Like what, doing whatever. So they never had to pay allowance because I feel like my first job was baby chicken, I mean, babysitting and then working like at a baby chicken. No, no, <laughs> babysitting, then working so at a chicken Portland. shack and then working, you know, and picking berries and then working at like a childcare center and then working at a community center. I'm just, all sorts of random jobs. And I think that what I did was I just wanted to be open to everything. If I'm going to make coffee for you, I want to make the best coffee possible. If I'm going to fetch paperwork and make photocopies for you, I'm going to make the fastest photocopies you'll ever have seen in your life. If I'm, do you know what I mean? It's like I wanted to just be the best at whatever the task at hand was and leave an impression. That's the most important thing. All, always go into a situation knowing and thinking to yourself, what do I want the takeaway to be? And always think about how am I going to leave an impression on this person because that will always come back 10 years later, five years later, whatever, um, to your benefit. I mean, I've had people say, you know what? You were always really good at always answering and responding to my emails. That's not a big deal. You know, you would think that's like, you know, business 101. But because I left that impression, they came back to me years later and says, hey, can we work on a project together? Or another example, it's like, you know what? You were always really good at remembering my birthdays and my, uh, my, my anniversary. It's not that hard. You know, you just jot the note down write and down. You yeah. write it down and you send the text. Happy birthday. And they come back and they're like, you know what, thank you. You always remembered me. You always, you know, no matter how many years go by and how long it's been since we've seen each other, you always knew to text me on my birthday. And these people have become clients, you know. You're always asking me about my family. Thank you so much. It's like, no problem. That's just what I do. Um, but anyway, you know, it's, it's, it's taking on the little tasks that will then lead up to the big dream. I guess is what I did when I was in my 20s. To, um, to piggyback off take that? those typing tests like I did because I dreamt of being a secretary. Yeah. <laughs> As a transplant to Portland also in my early 20s, I find that the city is super small. So you never know who you're sitting next to. And it's everyone's so low-key, like works at something. Like coming from the East Coast, I was like, oh, this person looks rich. They must have an important job. Now I'm like, this person's wearing Birkenstocks and like Patagonia might work at Nike. Like I just never know. So it's just like this, you're, you really feel like the degree is like one person away. So you talk to everyone, you act with kindness, like leave an impression. I love that. And you'll just start to see like reoccurring people. I'm sure you'll start to see the five of us around the city more and more. And it, it kind of feels like a small college again where you're like, oh, my friend knows this. Oh, you're interested in hairdressing. Well, I know a hairdresser who could talk to you. So I would just say, like, put out that good energy and know that Portland has a really great artistic entrepreneurial community that's, like, always open to help. I would definitely agree with that. I think that you you never know, like, like Vivian said, who you are sitting next to. And also, I just think that you might end up doing something that you never thought that you would. You know, like, my sister moved out here from Philly, and now she's, like, making, like, leather bound jewelry with with crystals from scratch and like <laughs> selling you know like and like works in vintage clothing and like you know what I mean like all these things it's like not what she was doing before you know so you just never know um any other questions last question okay yeah, yeah. listen double up I'm on that you talked about traveling with a carry-on so what are some of the items that you keep to like be refreshed when you come out of the plane because that's I don't look fresh off of a plane. <laughs> Actually, there was, um, I was traveling with a client. We had just flown in a private plane from Brazil to Gabon in Africa. And 
I'm not even thinking about it. It was just like a 15 hour flight. I was tired and I didn't know there was paparazzi, you know, Ooh. waiting for us when we landed. That's funny. There's pictures of me out there right now, you guys. You can't search it because, you know, it's not, I'm not tagged by my name. But I'm like, I look awful. I looked awful stepping off of that private plane. So I don't have any beauty tips at all, I promise you. Um, I mean, beauty tip number one, step off of a private plane. <laughs> I've traveled with clients who, um, clients and, and their wife would go on the same trip and the wife had a whole routine. Like, we'd get on the plane, and, you know, of course, it's in first class, and so she gets in her pajamas and her little, you know, sleeping suit, and ma eye mask, everything falls asleep, and then about an hour before we land, she goes in the bathroom and literally walks out of the bathroom as, like, this gorgeous superstar. I mean, you know. That's that, amazing. And, that, and that, that, that's how they step off the plane. So she steps off the plane in paparazzi, and she's looking great. That's like definitely like a first class thing. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. if you could do that when you're in like 27F. Like, no, 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 definitely not. Bathroom's <laughs> right there. Right. <laughs> you're very close to the bathroom. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Teresa. Thank, Thank you. I just have to say, um, when I took my first business trip at 18 years old, I was super excited to be on an Alaska Airlines flight and they gave me free peanuts. Yeah. So at 18 years old and you go from free peanuts to years later doing private jets, like from peanuts to private jets is probably going to be the name of my book. I was going to say, <laughs> because, you know, who would have ever thought, but if there's anything, just follow your dream, know your passions, trust in the universe. Um, know that you have superpowers because every one of us in this room has superpowers. We just don't realize it yet or may not accept it yet but you do um have a lot of fun doing what you want to do and almost treat it as if it's a game with yourself you know what i mean challenge yourself every day to try to just do something and all those little things will lead up to something big but it's just it's just it's don't overthink it it's just <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you to Thank the Hoxton. Thank you ladies for coming and gentlemen. Thank you Connie. Thank you Donovan. Kayla. Uh, really appreciate everybody coming. Have some mimosas. All right. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you.